Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Today we're looking at the big, wide world of short stories through the prism of two wonderful new collections courtesy of two British writers, Tessa Hadley and Lawrence Osborne. Short stories can offer reader and writer an opportunity to marvel at or exercise sublime control over plot, pace and character in a form in which experimentalism and beating a path less familiar can refresh the writer's pen away from the long-form rigours of novel writing. Of course, you can go anywhere in a book, but could it be true that writers go a little further and a little weirder in a short story? We'll be wondering about the generalities and the specifics of how wide a writer might cast their creative net, how far and fast they go under such a confined snow globe of a form, and explore a little of the craft of short story writing. At the end of the day, it is about the story, but how do each of these seemingly quite different writers get there? Short stories are today's Monocle on Culture. First up, Tessa Hadley, who, although also a novelist, is loved and lauded as a master of the short story form, of which she's written a handful of collections, often after these stories have appeared in The New Yorker. Hadley's stories are piercing, highly controlled Swiss watches of stories, perfect of timing and often focused in scale. They're also tender and universal. Tessa came in to talk about her new collection, titled After the Funeral. Tessa, congratulations on after the funeral such a beautiful collection subtle collection of of short stories in which all your characters beguiling characters seem to be on a sort of sliding scale of self-awareness I wondered how much sort of agency and self-awareness you give them whether in the rereading and rewriting of these these stories of which there is I'm sure some whether you you have to take add or subtract some self-awareness from these these characters I suppose it would be really hard to write stories through the consciousness of people who weren't somewhat self-aware because, mm. in a way, nothing to say. <laughs> Those people might be fascinating in a story, but they would be the object of your of your primary character's fascination, if you like. Mm. I, I, I've done that certainly in a novel where one character will emerge as the person I couldn't possibly ventriloquize. I couldn't be inside her head, and yet she can exert power on the people who are watching her and trying to piece together what she's thinking. But in a way, a story is narrated in words and words are thought, and to some extent, you have to have your characters conscious but then of course the limits of that consciousness and the things they don't know about themselves are equally interesting and and then if you get a nice fluid narrative line you can supply that along with their own thinking and your narrator your narrator your is, is possibly yourself is often you as the writer i suppose being judgmental a little catty with some of your characters necessarily so you are in a position of omnipresence and omnipotence i suppose what about your characters do you have to you seem pretty sympathetic to the characters in in this collection there are a few vague snakes in the grass i suppose how well do you get on with your own characters i wonder i kind of think that's the only open big position to write from you will just get so much more if you're imaginatively with them. I mean, say a character in my story, funny little snake, Marise, the dreadful, monstrous mother of the little girl. 
And she is dreadful and monstrous, and I had enormous fun in uh, showing her. I, I never do, as it happens, go inside her head. We only know what she does and looks like she and really says. really reminded me of my friend's mum from school. Oh, dear. How is your friend? <laughs> Actually, fairly well adjusted. OK, great. Well, let's, let's hope for bump. Robin then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but even with her... I actually, it's it's sort of too smug and too small to just knock someone down. Although there are people who just deserve, of course, that maybe they're not in stories because they're not interesting enough. But I give her just a little bit of room when I talk about her going to that convent school and how the nuns hated her and she didn't get much of an education. And then imagine being married to, to that man that the two women share and how bad that was sometimes. And I actually, when she talks about him, her ex-husband, father of the little girl, Robin, and she talks about his cleverness and how she sat at his feet and then one day she thought, there he is flying along in the cockpit of his cleverness. And I just thought <laughs> there's so much more. And so for that moment... She's got something to say. And mostly, mostly, even people one really doesn't like very much, <laughs> in chat with them, yeah. they reveal things, they say things, they have a perspective on things. Yeah, there's a generosity, I think, to it, as, as you say. To most of the depictions and the treatment of, of your characters, everyone has, I suppose, a reason why they might, might have tripped over in the past and they continue mm. to trip other people over in mm. the present yeah. and possibly yeah. the future, especially as th this, this woman is a mother as well, I suppose. And in terms of the characters, this collection is abundant with, as I say, big, such beguiling characters. Do they reveal themselves slowly to you? Do you have a sort of action man, action woman kind of figure in front of you as you're writing and you dress them up in different clothes, I wonder? Or are they a mystery to you until that the full stop goes on the end of that story, mm. I wonder? To some extent, yeah. Actually, that's really true. And that's what makes writing such a thrilling thing when it's going well is that you genuinely, people change from page to page what you've written on one page. And it's also the lovely thing about prose fiction. It's long. So somebody is something on one page, and that was true. And then, just like in life, you know, another week, another time, another age, they are nuanced differently. And so that you aren't finished with them till you put the last full stop down. But I have to kind of have something to start with some sense of the person and what's in, what's interesting and what's rich about them and their situation. And those two things seem to come together. The situation, the story and the individual come all at once and I kind of get a fix on them. Sometimes it's a physique and sometimes it's a situation. A name's really important. It takes mm. me ages to get the right name sometimes. And then I'll suddenly, I'll, I'll kind of fall in love with the name and have it for myself and, and enjoy it. Yes, the, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. You've got a kind of chocolate box of names and you pick one out and maybe put it back. Yeah, yeah, some of them you... <laughs> Lick it and put it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the one with coconut inside Yeah, always, always. always yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Cherry brandy, put it Actually, back. I'm just thinking about that. I don't think they make those chocolates with coconut inside. Maybe everybody well, put them back. people have voted with their feet. They have. Exactly. They've gone through the bins. They've gone through the bins, yeah. 
You mentioned, Tessa, the physique and posture of some of your characters, mm. and it seemed to me that there is some sort of subtle surveillance going on. You mentioned Animal Instinct. This happens in a couple of stories. In The Bunty Club, which is wonderful, and Coda, the final story in the collection, that people don't realise they're being watched. Uh, mm. The younger sister in the garden is dancing in yes. this long grass in the garden, and she's observed by her sisters from an upstairs window. And then Teresa, the, the carer for the neighbour in the final story, is observed by the mother's daughter. Yeah. I think it happens maybe once or twice more as well. You're writing a character observing someone being observed. Mm. How there is something through a glass darkly happening here. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very powerful position to be in as a writer. And it's a, it's a sort of happily powerless position to be in for the character being observed, it seems, in a way. Mm. They seem like the only people that are free. How difficult it is, is it to write these bits? And what do they sort of mean for you, that this kind of... Yeah, the subtle surveillance, perhaps. I mean, I suspect, I'm not sure how hyper-conscious I am of doing that. Because I love, I love point those, out those two. Books, yeah. yeah. I mean, I suspect it stands in for being a writer, doesn't it? It stands <laughs> in for the surveillance. I sometimes think when I ask myself why it took me a long, long time to get it right with writing. I was really writing a long time before I wrote anything that felt true. Hmm. And I think I was part of the answer is I was just soaking stuff up. Like everybody does. It's like everybody does. Mm. We all watch each other, some more, some less. We soak that stuff in and we, we identify it and we, we're curious about it and we fantasise what lies behind what we see. So I suppose that's why that recurs in my stories, people watching other people. It's paradigmatic in, <laughs> in human relations, isn't it? Yeah. Otherwise, we're just locked inside ourselves, <laughs> bumping up into people like automatons, whereas actually we are greedily curious about others, in real life often wrong. We often read the wrong thing. We're not always all that good at reading each other, though Though crucially we're good enough and it binds us all together. But um, in fiction, one's allowed to be right. You're allowed, you're allowed <laughs> yeah. to watch people and actually know what they're doing and what they're thinking. Yeah. No, because they're really affecting and effective moments in, in your prose and in the story, I suppose. And I... Yeah, I wanted to. I just wanted to ask you how those things worked, and you sort of said, and I know that you came to being published mm. in your forties. Mm -hmm. That's that's a fact well known for all the people that that love your work, Tessa. Were you a noticer of things up until that point, or did you finally become an inventor, or was it was it the same process? It, something just clicked. I wonder. I mean, I suspect that noticing things one has as a continu continuum with many other people. As I say, not everybody, but there's a huge, important, maybe half of people are soaking each other up all the time. And then there's this other funny, weird thing that writers do, which is like painters learn, which is very odd and against nature, to make pictures of what they're soaking up and seeing. And it's just as unnatural to make stories out of it. People mm. think sometimes, I think, because writing is done in language, that it's more natural there's a more straightforward line from just seeing and observing and being interested in and being fascinated by to putting it into a story but actually it's as artificial as then sitting down to make a picture of it and it, that's the painful long learning process doing justice to yeah. what one has and where does one have it it's not exactly in front of your eyes of course analogy with painting breaks down, you know, because I, I didn't see any of that stuff happening. But somewhere you've, you've watched, you've taken that inside imagination and inside fantasy 
and then you play the scene in your mind's eye, but with a scrupulous realism, drawing on observation, and then you have to painfully and with great difficulty find the true sentences that do justice to what's in your mind's eye. And that's the bit that makes writers not like, not like other people, if you like. Yeah. I mean, they're like other people. They are just people. <laughs> but it's that's the sort of specialist, funny, odd thing that writers do is learning to make the sentences represent what they can see in their imagination. What a fantastic answer. Set Hadley on writing, basically. <laughs> that was 101. Loved it. And just finally on... Well, it's sadly, finally, on, on the apparatus, maybe. Your rooms are wonderful. Your, your sort of set design as a writer is, is, is wonderful. And I wondered how important that was to you to put the way people dress. You've, you've talked about posture and, and, and how they hold themselves, but what people wear, how they wear it, and the rooms that people live in yeah. seems to be very important, rightly so. But does that help you define that character? Does it help simply tell the story? I say yeah. simply tell the story as if that's easy. But it does. Yeah, it, so it does. I wonder about your, your sets. Yeah, it does. And and in a way, it's just, it's partly your right for me. Although, interestingly, when it comes to the sets, I almost feel I really urgently want to cue my reader in and help them to get this person. Yeah. And I feel we're all good at reading you know the the, the way the we way paint the walls. Someone's what, got a kit. You know, someone's got a Laura yeah. Ashley kitchen, or exactly, it's been updated. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that in the Bunty Club. Yeah. The way she's sewn forty years before, I think there's Laura Ashley curtains that don't quite meet in the middle, mm. and there's a bit of a fault in her when she hemmed them on the sewing machine, and and they faded to that peppery colour as old Laura Ashley curtains do, <laughs> and that I, all of that stuff I feel it's really precious to me in kind of placing them. I mean, there are so many clues about class, money, history, taste, personality, imagination, cued into a pair of curtains or a cushion or the colour you paint a wall, actually. And, And it's really good. Often I almost feel I do know those things about those people, but I really need to communicate them urgently to make sure my reader's with me. So I'm, I've never thought or said that before, but I think that's even more than the physical presence, which is, remains somewhat enigmatic and yet essential to me to know their physical presence. But the anthropology of people's surroundings is, is very much a kind of come with me, get, get who it is I'm talking about sort of thing I'm doing, triangulation with the reader. Yeah, and and the way that and this bears itself at the way that in the other one, Eloise aspires to and and admires the way that Delia dresses, holds herself, yeah. the way that she puts a scarf over, drapes a scarf over her shoulder yeah. when the night draws in at a party outside, for example. I mean, this is about women, women judging other women, yeah. trying to like and trying to step around other mm. women, perhaps. But that's hugely important. The mm. way that you t- you describe that relationship so mm. beautifully the trickiness of that relationship so beautifully just with the way that one woman watches how another woman Mm. dresses, the ease that she presumes the other woman dresses. Yes, yes. And in fact, we know that Eloise, that's her job, that she dresses sets and and that she dresses herself to perform a role. And I think I've just given in her an exaggerated version of particularly what women do. It's so fascinating to watch them. I mean, her lovely Anthony, who she doesn't get in the end, says to her at some point, oh, you look like an intellectual Jewess from Minsk. And she thinks, oh, that's exactly what I was aiming for. I mean, how sort of comical, tragical, extraordinary that is. But 
but that's what we do. And mm. it shows how human imagination resonates all over the place to suggestive possibilities from here, there, from him, her. And it's sort of, it's like, yeah, humans strike a tuning fork of themselves in in response to the world and, and a story can sort of catch them doing that. Beautifully put. It's a wonderful collection. Thank you so much, Tessa. Thank you, Rob. Lawrence Osborne is much better known as a novelist. In fact, we'll be talking about his first collection of short stories. His novels and stories follow a similar path to himself, perhaps. They're peripatetic, strange, places in which characters find themselves up against forces against their control, investigating areas relatively unexplored. They surge forward, containing big ideas and big phenomena. Volcanoes, tsunamis, storms, at once physical, meteorological and psychological. I spoke to Lawrence on the line from his home in Bangkok about Burning Angel and other stories. Lawrence, it's wonderful to hear your voice down the line um, from Bangkok today. Um, Thanks for your time on the programme. I wanted to jump straight in. I feel like we're I'm jumping into a cauldron very happily in your collection of stories, Burning Angel. I wonder how there's a lot of there's a lot of forces beyond characters' control. They're kind of facing the inevitable. They're at the at the mercy of the gods somehow. Now, are they at the mercy of you as the writer, or is there something even larger at play behind the pen of of Lawrence Osborne even? Well, it's as uh, Nabokov used to say about his characters. You, you know, um, I make them line up and I make them uh, salute and uh, promise to be obedient. And I think that's, uh, but that's not my method at all. I'm, I'm exactly the reverse. And these stories came out of, um, they were the first fiction I wrote 10, 15 years ago, but I never put them into a collection. So they were the first kind of stabs at trying this new form, which were a new form for me anyway. And I've always felt that human beings are not in control of anything at all. And I think these stories were the first way of exploring that theme, which went on to become much bigger themes in in uh, novels, which I wrote later. So, yes, and the first of the stories to write was Volcano, which was published in one of the big American magazines. And it was a story about a woman who went to an, on a retreat to Kalani in uh, Hawaii. I had gone on that retreat for the New York Times. They sent me out there to explore lucid dreaming. And the thing about lucid dreaming is that, of course, that's the uh, an activity in which you have no control over anything um, except inside your dream, which is not control at all. Yeah, there seems to be there is a theme of sort of belief systems <clears throat> being challenged throughout these stories as well. People are we, we mentioned at the beginning, people are kind of jump pushed into the pushed in over the lip of the volcano. Perhaps they're sort of being taken out of the frying pan into the fire in lots of ways in these stories. Professional people having their expertise questioned, observers kind of not being able to have, having sort of an inundation of information perhaps there's a lot of challenging of, of beliefs belief systems throughout these stories i suppose that must be satisfying as you, you sort of mentioned nabokov lining up his characters like soldiers and you mentioned that's something you've sort of walked away from but it must be satisfying to put these characters into these situations and seeing if they crumble or if they excel i suppose lawrence well people crack very easily um, more easily than you think it doesn't take much to make this make the crack happen I'm not above it. I mean, it's true of me as well, insofar as I have a belief system. I'm not even sure quite what it is. I think belief systems in themselves are involuntary and mysterious. 
and probably an, an outgrowth of temperament, which might as well be biology for all I know. And I've noticed that temperament does does determine ideology, does determine the way you look at the world and all kinds of things, but in, in ways that are almost entirely unconscious for most of us, hapless babes that we are. And I think that, you know, but you, you, but you put people into the circumstances which they can't control, then obviously, you know, the, the, the whole structure begins to fall. But it, it wouldn't be enough just to be sort of smugly sadistic and just watching that happen. I mean, obviously, human beings suffer in that process, and the suffering in itself is dark, and it's sort of marvelous in a way. I mean, in the literal sense of that word, it makes me, it fills me with a kind of dread and wonder that this can happen to human beings. And I wanted to ask you about your your characters are very beguiling, and, and you've got a great craft of jumping from the thoughts of a narrator to the thoughts of characters and across across a page of prose we can we can be in the heads of three different characters and perhaps that of the narrator himself there is something sort of omniscient to the narratives in some of these stories but also we can see your characters doing that thing walking into the jungle kind of unbidden and unguided i suppose as well do you always know where your characters are going to go on the page and in the process of a story or do you set them off on a path is it planned out in post-it notes on your wall I wonder or are you writing and seeing where the pen takes you in these stories I've never understood this thing about uh, pasting notes on the wall I know that scriptwriters who are friends of mine do this and they, they plot everything out I've always felt that that's a very bad way to, to, to tell or write a story because it goes dead halfway through if you do that I think you have planned that you have to plan the first half get to the midway point and begin to sink and then you find a way out because then you lay yourself open to your own unconscious and to the unconscious of others, by the way, because readers have unconsciouses as well. This is what you're trying to get into, what you're trying to get near to. So I feel that overplanning is a terrible thing. For that reason, characters have to be enigmatic to the writer, not just to the reader. Uh, you, you can't know, if you can see around every single character entirely, then that character is probably not going to be alive. But you have to see around them to a certain degree. This thing, this technique of going from head to head, as it were, on a, within a single paragraph or a single page, is oft criticized as being a sort of a technical fault. But it's not a technical fault. It's something I thought about very carefully over a very long period of time. And it's something I like to do, and I do it for a reason. It actually, I think, emphasizes the sort of terror and irrationality of story as it unfolds. But of course, not every writer is aiming for those states of mind. I love that idea of the unconscious. And I wanted to draw our listeners' attention to one of your stories, Camino Real, which takes on, we are in a very real place, but we seem also to be in a, in a sort of Mexican dreamscape. And there's an idea almost that Angel, this kind of drifter, is a bit like an Orpheus being being taken down into the underworld. I read it again before our conversation today, Lawrence, and there's something very beguiling about that. They're on the sort of edge lands of, of Mexico. We're in a lot of, there's a lot of, to use a horrible contemporary phrase, there's a lot of liminal space in this story. Can you give us a little bit of a hint about how that one came about? I mean, and, and we'll come on perhaps in my, in my next question to, to how much you've travelled and, and how that plays into your stories. But are we in a real Mexico here or are we in a sort of underworld Mexico? We're in very much a real Mexico. And how that story came about was that uh, it's quite an interesting story, actually, because my first job when I was about 30 or something was to be hired by a small newspaper on the border in El Centro in California. 
and I went off not knowing where I was going or why or, you know, except that I was being paid very well. And I ended up spending two years on the border writing about the Maquiadora, which is the sort of semi-industrialized zone between the United States and Mexico. But also they were sending me to Mexico City to write stories about um, coyotes, illegal immigrants and all this stuff. And I would be taking the immigrant buses from Autobuses del Norte in Mexico City to Sonoita on the border and walking across the border just to see as a stunt as a stunt to show that it could be done and how you would describe it. And I did this a lot. You know, I spent, and this was a time when I was completely alone there. I, I didn't know anybody. Um, I had to learn Spanish really quickly in order to sort of negotiate all that in Mexico itself. And then eventually ended up getting a house um, down in a place called La Misión in Baja and kind of living there half the year. And I, you know, there's a sort of um, two sides to that. On the one hand, there's the border itself, which is like uh, Touch of Evil, you know, the Orson Welles film. It's like it is this sort of, especially El Centro, which is a, a really scary place. And I was doing ride-alongs with the police and drug dealers and all this stuff. Uh, but then the other side of it was that I grew to really love Mexico in a way that I don't really love. I haven't loved that many places as much as I love Mexico. It was very romantic. I mean, it was romantic in the sense that I was alone with myself going nowhere, doing nothing in a sort of dead end job, but at the same time, just traversing this landscape, you know, over and over and over again. So it's a landscape, particularly the Northern desert landscapes of Sonora and Sonoma. I mean, those are landscapes that are deeply burned into my conscious. When I was asked by the uh, Raymond Chandler estate to write a continuation novel for Philip Marlowe, I originally said no, because I, I didn't really want to do a pastiche, you know, of 1950s LA, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then eventually I said, well, you know, if you let me write, set that book in 1990 so that Marlowe can be 80 years old, then I can write a book about my time in Mexico using my notebooks that I'd never used. After some haggling and huffing and puffing, they eventually said yes. And that book was also set in the Mexico that I knew, not the Mexico that I imagined existed in the 1950s. But Camino Real actually was written before that. So it was the first thing I wrote about that zone, about that place. And I think there's, there's something, it's hard to describe those sort of dead-end towns in Southern California and Northern Mexico. Nobody goes to them. You know, even people living in LA, they go to Paris, but they don't go to, they don't go to Mexico. They don't go to that part of Mexico. There's something dangerous about it. Well, now it's very dangerous because of the cartels. It wasn't so dangerous back then, but it was still a place where you wouldn't want to be stopped at seven o'clock at night by by guys, you know, pretending to be policemen. It's that sort of place. It's very. It it it's, it has always had a kind of um, lawless, infernal aspect to it. But that's by virtue of the fact also that it's just so big. I mean, so sparsely populated. It fascinated me that you could go through these these tiny towns. Uh, I used to go to this town called Benjamin Hill, and I never understood why it was called Benjamin Hill. <laughs> I, hold up. I would say to friends in LA, you know, I'm going to hold up in Benjamin Hill. And they sort of thought thought I would go going back to England, but no, it was this little fly speck bled in the middle of nowhere in the Sonoran Desert. And um, I just, I love the desert too. I've always been, you know, there's something about deserts that terrify me and therefore inspire me, I guess. There are a selection um, in 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 this book as well, I suppose, or more or more than more than one. Just finally, Lawrence, any listeners, a cursory Google of your name will, will bring up all the places you've travelled. There is a lot of that in this collection of short stories. I suppose it was when you were itinerant and you were a correspondent for various outlets as well. 
But I guess I'm going to ask you the obvious one at the end. Is is travelling, to the extent you've done it, actually good for writing? Or is it easier to, you know, is that romantic idea true? Or is it easier to stick in one place in your apartment in Bangkok and, and, and remember these places and write about them, I wonder? Well, I think it's certainly easier to stay in one place and remember them. I feel like I've done it and I'm not doing it now. It's just a phase of life and you have to be younger in a way and have a bit more energy and put up with more hardship. Now I'm a spoiled brat. I like my five-star hotels and I don't really move that much, you know. And maybe that's wrong, actually. And maybe I should get out a bit more. But I feel like I'm already in Bangkok, which is already kind of weird enough. I mean, it's, it's uh, even though I don't write about Bangkok. Um, but it's, you know, I think I, I'm, I was glad I did it. But I was traveling back then, mostly as a journalist, uh, for, for specific reasons, you know. Going to Morocco, I was given the brief to write about child labor in quarries, you know, fossil quarries. It wasn't traveling, quote unquote, whatever that means. You know, I, I always had these sort of, you know, ways of connecting with those environments that were rather odd uh, from the perspective of a tourist. And that's been true of everywhere I've gone, really. All my travel was paid for, if you, if you like, on, in that way. And that's why it, it always turned out to be useful to me, because it never felt like travel per se. The fruits of doing it differently are there for all to read <laughs> in Burning <laughs> Angel then, Lawrence. Thank you very much for your time today. And we should point people in the direction of Only to Sleep as well, which is your, your Philip Marlowe novel, as you mentioned, about your time in Mexico as well. Lawrence Osborne, for the time being, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for entertaining me and being entertained. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Tessa Hadley and Lawrence Osborne. After the Funeral is published by Jonathan Cape and Burning Angel and Other Stories is published by Hogarth. And both are out now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. (laughs) 